Welcome to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. As much as your health and well-being are important, so is the health and well-being of your pet. Join us today as we break down some of the top treatment and wellness programs that you need to know about in order to help your pet live a fulfilling and healthy life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Welcome to Healthy Tales, where we discuss animal-related news, interview experts in specific areas of veterinary medicine, and discuss product information for pet owners in our Product of the Week segment. I'm your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras, and with me today are my three amazing co-hosts, Dr. Elaine McCarthy, veterinary technician Tim Hayes, and Dr. Robbie Unsel. Thanks for joining me, guys. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Good morning. We have a great show for you today. I'll be interviewing the unbelievably accomplished Dr. Danny McMeady, and we'll be discussing her life's mission and how it's changing veterinary medicine. Later, I will discuss a product that can help keep pets healthy and keep their Cool Joe status in our Product of the Week segment. We want to thank you all, our incredible listeners, for all your ongoing support. We love hearing from you and getting all your feedback. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, or topic ideas, please reach out to us. We want to talk about the things that matter to you. You are welcome and encouraged to email me at vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Okay, I think it's time for some headlines in our first segment. Extra, extra, wolf all about it. <laughs> all right, Elaine, want to start us off today? I would love to. <laughs> So, uh, currently wildlife farmers with legal breeding permits in two provinces in mainland China are being offered a government buyout to help move away from breeding wild animals for consumption. Um, As we talked about last week, uh, wet markets in China have been implicated for helping spread the COVID-19 virus. Um, The money hopefully will help wildlife farmers transition to alternative livelihoods, such as growing fruit, veggies, tea plants, herbs, etc. On February 24th, the Standing Committee of China's National People's Congress banned wild animal consumption for food. A similar model is being used in South Korea um, with dog meat farmers. Uh, Currently, the China's National Dietary Guidelines recommended a 50% reduction in meat consumption, um, so healthy plant-based foods are in higher demand, so hopefully this will help um, with that as well. The downside of the buyout is that it does not include wild animals bred for fur or Chinese medicine or animals used in entertainment, pet trade, or for display. Um, Currently, about $18 billion um, of China's industry is wildlife consumption, whereas $55 billion is in the fur industry. So obviously, this does not kind of meet where the majority of those wild animals are are kind of being bought and sold. Uh, There are current plans to reclassify raccoon dogs, foxes, and mink as livestock, not as as wildlife, for this purpose. Um, But the downside is these species can also act as intermediate hosts for viruses, so it doesn't doesn't, uh, very well take care of that situation. There's also concern um, for the welfare of the animals that will have to be culled due to this wildlife trade ban. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see how how everything kind of pans out if it's going to actually affect how many wildlife are available at these uh, wet markets and if there's going to be kind of any regulation further with fur trading and all and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, as much as I want an all-encompassing plan, <clears throat> you know, to deal with every part of the animal trade, entertainment and exotic, you know, animal farmers, 
again, I think this is at least a great start. I mean, it's a plan to see if they can make this work and if it can be successful. Uh, again, this is a huge kind of, you know, uh, turnover. And so you can, you, you know, you can try to do this really in two, uh, in two provinces. So you can, uh, you can see what parts of the implementation works. All right. And then you can see what doesn't work so that again, when you make broader legislation, it's more likely to be successful. Again, we know that a lot of these species are intermediate hosts, like you said, again, like such as COVID-19 um, that humans can get. And thus, again, measures need to be taken to protect, obviously, the general public from these dangers. Again, right now, again, like you said, you know, the, <clears throat> the plane does not include the biggest economic impact in the fur trade. But again, there's two sides to this. Like we need, again, we need to uh, offer incentives to these business, businesses like the fur trade and, you know, those uh, in entertainment. Um, to owners to help transition their businesses, but we also need to put pressure on consumers to stop buying these products at the same time. And so, uh, again, it's, it's, it's one of those all-encompassing, um, you know, again, we definitely need to take a look at the whole broader picture of how we need to try to implement some of these, um, these programs and, and see how they work. But, uh, again, I think, again, I'm excited. At least this is a, a start, a, 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 an initiative to start making an effort uh, to kind of curb these type of, um, you know, this exotic trade. All right, Robbie, what do you got for us today? And so <clears throat> it looks like we're uh, covering an article in the U.S. News titled Telehealth for Your Pets. And uh, this article actually discusses the emergence and importance of telehealth uh, and veterinary medicine uh, since the start of the pandemic. And, you know, similar to, to human medicine, uh, veterinary medicine has been implementing telehealth uh, to a significantly more uh, degree than before. Um, and, you know, prior to the pandemic, vets already, you know, did quite a bit of telemedicine. You know, we're, we're constantly talking to owners over the phone uh, to determine if uh, the symptoms of an animal uh, that, that, that they're showing are, are worth worrying about. Um, similar to, you know, pediatric medicine, since our patients can't, uh, can't talk to us. Uh, but recently, the profession has been doing much more uh, than, than before. And the uh, American Veterinary Medical Association actually recommends at this time uh, using telemedicine whenever possible uh, during the, the the pandemic to at least minimize foot traffic uh, in animal hospitals and kind of reduce, uh, hopefully reduce exposure of support staff and doctors to clients and, and vice versa. And, you know, luckily, uh, the majority of states have been relaxing their telemedicine laws uh, in order to facilitate this change. Um, you know, most states still require uh, a prior veterinary client uh, patient relationship uh, before uh, prescribing medications or diagnosing any medical conditions. Uh, but I've actually been pretty impressed with the um, various state boards' rapid response uh, to the changing dynamics that the, the pandemic has kind of placed in our profession. You know, it's always, uh, you know, bureaucracy is always kind of a slow wheel, and it's always nice to see uh, these, these rapid responses, rapid sort of uh, relaxing and, uh, and, and laws uh, to kind of facilitate um, this, uh, this to work. Uh, but, you know, there are some drawbacks uh, to telemedicine. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, vet medicine is very similar to, to pediatric medicine. We, we rely on, you know, an owner's interpretation and clinical history uh, to diagnose a problem. And we're also heavily reliant on a physical exam uh, since there are things that we as doctors and vet nurses are, are more kind of likely to notice than an owner would. And so telemedicine presents a few problems since a physical exam is, is not, is not you know, likely to be performed. And, you know, treatment of, you know, urinary tract infections, ear infections, skin infections, eye infections, I mean, they, they often require additional diagnostics before prescribing medication. Um, and that's just, you know, physically impossible to do. Um, with uh, with telemedicine. Now, having said that, I'm obviously okay with the occasional, you know, non-gold standard uh, treatment. 
Uh, but anytime we're, we're, we're doing that, it obviously needs to be done um, with the owner kind of fully understanding the pros and the cons and kind of what we're, uh, what we're you know, trying to accomplish. You know, what would you think, Mondrian? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I always want to make people remember, like, let's remember, like, telehealth for infants. Like you said, again, um, you know, they, have, they can't tell us what's wrong either. Instead, parents need to observe and describe what's going on with them. So, again, we've actually probably been using this for years. I know my babies, again, when they've gotten a fever or been fussy, and you definitely know this, Robbie, uh, we call, you know, we call tele, you know, basically telemedicine, and they basically tell us, you know, again, you know, if you're, if you're, um, you know, if your child is, uh, it, you know, it doesn't feel well, then obviously, you know, I mean, you can come in or just, you know, come in later if it's not getting better. Or if you feel like it's an emergency, come in. So I love telemedicine as, as an option. Um, you know, I mean, as an option to decide if pets can come in immediately or could they wait and wait a while. And we have always done that, you know, a lot in our hospital uh, with phone consult consults and owners, you know, uh, you know, sending us pictures and videos of what's going on. But unfortunately, it can be very limiting. And so that's what I want to make sure owners understand when we look at it from like, you know, from when humans have been using this for a while with their with their own babies, because they can't tell us what's going on and understand how limiting it actually it is. But I think it's a great option. But it's really hard for owners to understand the limitations of telemedicine as treating their you know pet properly. So sometimes the you know like the pictures they send us are too grainy um, or just not close enough. Maybe the audio is really poor or the video is just shaky. And another important note is that telehealth to me is just, it's just really only appropriate for when you have like that client patient relationship, because I think again, in, in our cases, again, it's just been, it's just much easier. And I feel, and it's just much more comfortable if we know the pet, you know, to make, <clears throat> to make the, make a better judgment of what's going on with their pet, especially when we have a relationship and we kind of know the pet's history. And, and I think owners need to just understand like that is something very important um, to know, but this has been a really great option. Um, it's definitely been something um, that we've had to use a lot more. And, and I think again, owners are extremely appreciative um, of it. Um, I just, I just hope that they understand the, the question the limitations that they have that that telemedicine really has you know and it's in its place yeah i mean i, I think my, my biggest you know i think about it too is it, it does increase access to care uh, and that's always a bit of a, a bit a bit of a struggle sometimes um uh, you know regardless of kind of what the what the contributing factors are as to why people can't access care so that's that's a nice benefit but i just hope that you know obviously it doesn't get abused because i do see um, you know, some scenarios where uh, we're, we become a little bit overly reliant on it. And it's just our, our profession is so much more dependent than uh, in terms of trying to determine what a problem is. We, we have a lot more things that need to be taken into consideration. And telehealth certainly has its restrictions, but it definitely has a place right now, specifically in, you know, triaging uh, what's, uh, what's urgent and what isn't. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Tim, what do you got for us today? Uh, yeah, so there's been some new research on a uh, gene known as ADH7 that is linked to the metabolization of alcohol in mammals, and different species either lack this gene entirely or have you know uh, different versions of it which are more or less effective at metabolizing alcohol. The idea being that if you are metabolizing alcohol slower, you're more likely to get drunk more easily. Um, and some of the species that they call out in this article as lightweights are armadillos, <laughs> narwhals, uh, guinea pigs, uh, elephants, my coworkers. Um, <laughs> but the, the interesting uh, you know, species is elephants because as it turns out, there's been about 200 years of written theories about elephants getting drunk while eating marula fruit, which is a, a cousin of the mango and 
there's been a lot of debate back and forth, you know, um, you know, the idea being essentially that this, if they eat overripe fruit that's started to ferment, that they, they could essentially get drunk. Um, and there's been a lot of debate back and forth between scientists saying, you know, no, there, there's not going to be enough alcohol. If you look at the alcohol content versus the body weight of an elephant, um, it's just not possible. But that's been based on the idea that they metabolize alcohol similarly to humans. And this sort of suggests that, you know, perhaps they don't, perhaps they are uh, not metabolizing it nearly as effectively. And, and so they can get drunk on, on considerably less alcohol. Um, what I thought was really interesting about this and kind of became the focus to me is part of how they determined that elephants were, were getting drunk, uh, anecdotally at least, were that after eating the marula fruit, they seemed to sway a little more as they walked and that they got more aggressive which means all elephants are mean drunks <laughs> and instantly. Like, I don't care how much alcohol any various species takes to get drunk. What I want to know now, what I, what I think we need to turn all of our scientific apparatus towards figuring out is which species are the mean drunks and which are the ones that get a little weird, get like a little overly emotional. They've got their like arm around you. He's like, man, I've always really respected you. You're just a good guy. You do good things. I really want to find out who's who in the animal kingdom. <laughs> um, and, and I, you know, a lot of these types of research, they sound really silly on their face, but you know, you, you look into it more and it turns out that there's really a valid reason for why we're doing it. You know, like, There'll be like a, a research, you know, can bees wear shoes? And you're like, why, why, why would we need to determine if bears, bees can wear shoes? And it, it turns out to have something to do with like colony collapse disorder or something. And so I want to be clear that in this case, in this research, that's definitely not true. The article goes out of its way to point out that this research started when a couple of the scientists involved were getting drunk on their patio. And like, I wasn't there. But I can state definitively that what happened was they were drunk and like the cat walked by and one of them was like, guys, we should get the cat drunk. And the rest of them, a little more sober, a little more level-headed, they're like, no, 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 no. We, they, we can't get the cat drunk. We're, we are men of science. This is unethical. Unless, of course, it was part of a research project. <laughs> Do you guys think it would drink the whiskey out of a bowl or should I go get like an oral syringe? What's, what's, what's going to be... You know, so, uh, and then, you know, six months later, here we are. <laughs> Absolutely. I, get, I did think it was a little scary that these guys were giving, you know, like putting ethanol in these guys uh, in drinking water for these elephants, you know, and that they're actually, <laughs> yeah. these elephants are coming over and liking it. <laughs> you know? But what I found most surprising, I, I agree, Tim, like what I thought was most surprising was that elephants are aggressive drunks. I, yeah. I, I did, I swear to you, I thought elephants would be more of the gentle drunks. I, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I thought, I think this is because I read too many Horton the Elephant books, you know what I mean? And so that's probably the reason why, I mean, after all, elephant's an elephant, no matter how drunk, okay? And so again, uh, I think that's where I was getting my, my information from and my, you know, my theory. So, but again, I, I, love your, I love your take, Tim. That was great, great, uh, great synopsis, all right? All right, guys, so 
Uh, lastly, again, the Humane Society uh, Legislative Fund points out in their blog that the USDA is, uh, is actually tightening some of the reforms in licensing requirements um, in all animal trade dealers and exhibitors, including puppy breeders uh, and roadside zoos, uh, will now have to apply for a new license every three years and pass a planned license inspection uh, to get one. Again, to me, obviously, this is great, great news because in the past, the agency just automatically, I guess, would renew these licenses annually, allowing even those who had, had like severe and multiple animal welfare violations to continue operating. Again, the rule, um, the rule also uh, mandates that applicants must disclose any animal cruelty convictions uh, before, again, they can attain a license. So again, some of the other reforms include pets need to be seen by a veterinarian annually, must be vaccinated, you know, fresh water, you know, clean water 24-7, again, which I think is pretty, again, would be pretty obvious. Um, people applying for licenses uh, will need to go through new uh, pre-announced inspections. Uh, if they have any changes in animals uh, they are caring for, uh, certainly not all exhibitors um, have the resources to, or expertise, again, right, to care for these animals. And so in the reform, only people and um, uh, only people who are uh, animal exhibitors could get licensures and not people who are who intend to be exhibitors. And so because like in the past, I guess this was like one of the loopholes that exotic pet owners uh, could take advantage of. So, again, obviously, all this is great. But again, the biggest thing uh, with this reform is that, again, it needs to be enforced. Again, just like we talked about, again, with the, you know, the Animal Welfare Act, again, I mean, these things just, they just need to be enforced. And if, and if the current administration continues to make cuts, um, which they've had to, you know, um, you know, to the USDA and to some of these, um, you know, government agencies, um, again, I feel the animal welfare is not, again, animal welfare is not really uh, worth enforcing then, because again, it's just not, funding. And so we're not backing them to be able to do their job. And so, um, so all these reforms are basically, they're meaningless, uh, unless, unless, again, they're, they're properly funded. And so we have to try to push um, our legislators, um, or people hopefully in the White House, uh, to make sure that they are backing these measures, um, so that they can be properly enforced. And these animals can, you know, and so these agencies who are trying to do more things to help these pets, you know, give them better quality of lives, making sure that these things are just reinforced. So, Again, um, <clears throat> so that's just hopefully again, hopefully we'll be able to see how this goes. Yeah, I would I, I 100% agree with with your kind of your take on it. Um, you know, after reading that uh, that article, I was surprised to learn that since 2018, um, there's been no fines hand, uh, handed out to puppy mill owners and no license uh, revocations um, as well. And that, that is certainly a worrying trend. And so it's always good to hear, you know, um, strengthening of laws regarding these, uh, a lot of these issues, but you're right. If they're not going to be enforced, then kind of what's, what's the point? Absolutely, guys. You know, <clears throat> so we're gonna, we'll see, have to see how things go. All right. Um, we have, uh, I guess, a big election coming up, I think, in uh, <laughs> about six months. So we'll just see how things go. Again, guys, thank you guys for keeping us up to date in the animal news, everyone. Uh, when we get back, we'll be taking, we'll be talking with the extremely talented, Dr. Danny McVitie and learning all about her heartwarming mission when we get back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. 
The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund is a 501c3 organization created by Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Dr. Contreras had twin boys early in his vet school education. He often had to study with his children, which led to their love for animals and desire to help educate others about pets. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund stems from this love of animals and education. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund's mission is to help educate children and young adults about how to best care for their pets and to help them fulfill their dreams of becoming veterinarians, animal advocates, and animal healthcare professionals. This organization helps provide scholarship money as well as educational seminars to help individuals realize their dreams. The Vet Pros Pet Education Charitable Fund also provides financial assistance towards health care for pets in families experiencing various hardships such as bankruptcy and unemployment or natural disasters such as flooding, tornado, or fire. Please visit our website, vetbrospeteducation.org, and consider making a donation to our cause. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales. Welcome back to Healthy Tales. Quality of life is only getting better for our pets. They are living longer, healthier lives thanks to advances in veterinary medicine. We are seeing pets receive unbelievable care from owners that want the best for their furry family members. This improving care gives us more time and experience together with our pets, which in turn strengthens bonds even more. These strengthened bonds and the ability to care for and love our pets for so many years can make the decision for our pets end of life care one of the most difficult decisions pet families ever have to make. Pet owners can struggle watching their pets becoming unable to do the things they used to love to do. Knowing the right decision for your pet is different and unique to every family's situation. Owners often just need to talk to someone about their decision so they feel comfortable choosing the best path for their pet. Furthermore, once an owner has made such a decision or has come to terms with their decision to put their pet down, They often want it to be personal and in a private setting, to honor their pet in a way that shows them how much they were loved. One of the most difficult areas in veterinary medicine, end-of-life care, has been completely revolutionized by today's guest, Dr. Danny McVitie. Dr. McVitie founded Lap of Love Veterinary Hospice just three months after graduating from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine. Now an Inc. 5000 company and six-time recipient of the Gator 100 Award, Lap of Love has visited the homes of over 150,000 families with a nationwide network of over 120 passionate doctors and a full-time interdisciplinary support staff. Their team is dedicated to making the end-of-life experience for pets and the people that love them as dignified and peaceful as possible. Dr. McGeady has become widely known among the veterinary students nationally and internationally for her ability to authentically share her personal struggles through veterinary school. Her underlying message is one of accountability, hard work, and a focus on entrepreneurism. 
Dr. McVitie and The Lap of Love have been featured in numerous local, national, and professional media outlets, including New York Times, Washington Post, Entrepreneur Magazine, Huffington Post, and many more. She's proud to be a Gator and is one of the youngest recipients of both the UF College of Veterinary Medicine's Distinguished Young Alumni Award and the Florida Veterinary Medical Association President's Award. She was honored to also receive the Tampa Bay up-and-comers 40 Under 40 Hall of Fame Award and the Pet Industry Woman of the Year in 2017. With a home base and business headquarters in Tampa, Florida, Dr. McVitie's most prized moments occur at home with her husband, Dominic, and children, Baron, Colin, and Lion. Her non-human kids include two dogs, Blitzen and Grace, and her horse, Vanna. And Dr. McVitie, thank you so much for being here. We are obviously honored to have you on here. Thank you so much. Thanks, Vajun. I should have shortened that before I gave it to you. Oh, no, it was amazing. Okay, <laughs> don't shorten that. We want everybody to know who you are. All right. Did you, did you grow up in Florida, though? I did. I did. I grew up, gosh, probably a few miles from where I'm sitting right now. Yeah, in Tampa, Florida. Okay, awesome, awesome. And so, when, uh, obviously, the, the, when you did, did your undergrad at University of Florida, too? I did the majority of my undergrad at UF and then straight into vet school at UF. Okay. Now, is that when you knew, like, did you know right away you were going to be a veterinarian before you got into vet school? I did. I think I was thinking I must have been probably 9, 10, 11, 12, you know, somewhere in in that age. And a friend of mine, we were playing hide and seek and a friend of mine said, I want to be a veterinarian. And I was like, no, I want to be a veterinarian. That's what I want to be. And from then on, I never changed. You know, I thought about business in some aspects. I thought about maybe if I didn't get into vet school, I'd go to medical school. But at the end of the day, it always landed back on being a veterinarian. So what was your focus then? Because again, like you have been so, you know, heavy and focused both in, you know, animals and in business. I was wondering like, so in undergrad, is that what you focused on both? Did you like double major or anything like that? No, I should have. You know, if I had it to do all over again, I, I I would probably minor in business or something or accounting, something like that. And I think it's so important for veterinary students to to get that exposure. But me personally, I was raised by just two entrepreneurs, so I always had an interest in business, but science was always my, you know, that was always my path. So my undergrad degree was actually in microbiology, which oh, I, I chose awesome. that because it just sounds smart. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it was incredible to me, like in vet school, all right, because uh, you were uh, just, I could not believe like all the things that you did, like you had like little side businesses in vet school. Okay. And then you had, uh, and then again, you were, uh, you know, in so many different clubs, but you're our, you know, the business school president. And I'm like, like, how did you come about? How were you able to manage all that? And how was your, like your vet school experience with doing all of those amazing things? Like, Andrean, but I could say the same thing with you, you know, having a huge family and growing a family and stuff, you know, I, I don't know how you did it either, but I, <laughs> I always knew once I got into vet school, I, I knew that my success as a veterinarian was going to be at least somewhat related to my ability to manage a business, whether or not I bought one or I didn't, or I was just a, I was an associate, you know, I, I still wanted to grow in what I was learning. So actually veterinary school was the first time in my college career that I was that involved. When I was an undergrad, I wasn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't really do that, that much stuff, but, um, but I loved the VBMA, the Veterinary Business Management Association, the business club, you know, I love that. And I love all the people I got to meet. I, I think there was a, there was a calmness that came over me once I got into vet school because it's so hard to get in. Um, as you know, I failed a class in vet school, so I was held back for mm-hmm. a year. <laughs> you know, so that- Which is shocking because you are just unbelievably brilliant. But what, what was going on during that time? You know, I, I, it was one class nutrition at the end of freshman year and I just, I procrastinated 
and I didn't study for the test and I started studying around 2 a.m. And you know what, I think like most veterinarians, I got through high school and college really with pretty much flying colors where I could, I could just pull an all-nighter and get A's or B's. You know, I got maybe two C's in college in organic chemistry, which everybody does. But, you know, I, I, didn't, I, I, didn't really, um, I didn't really learn how to study until I got into vet school. So spending five years in vet school to me, you know, it probably made me seem like I was more, more involved than I actually was. But, it, you know, I just I didn't really have a choice. And, and, and I loved it. You know, I loved every part of, of vet school other than failing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really enjoyed the process of it. Uh, yeah. And so how did you plan like, uh, you know, something like the lap of love? Like how was your, you know, I mean, your, um, how was that transition, you know, from yeah. being able to, you know, vet school, being a business owner? I mean, was that always kind of the plan? Like how did that come about? You know, I, I think, I, I feel like my story is very, very common among, among veterinarians. You get into veterinary school and you just want to be a veterinarian. You don't really comprehend what that looks like yet. And so I got into vet school thinking I was going to do equine medicine, but then immediately switching to small animal medicine. I grew up with horses. And I think when I got into vet school, I realized I wanted horses to be my hobby, not necessarily my job. And being in Florida, that's very hard, you know, being outside all day. I knew I wanted to have a family, being pregnant, working with horses. Sometimes it's difficult. So I switched to small animal. And then going through small animal, I, I was like, oh, this isn't, this isn't my passion like horses are. So I switched back my junior year, and then I switched back to small animal my senior year. Um, and then when I, when I graduated, I had a one-year-old baby. I'd had a baby in vet school on purpose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so as, as a mom, I needed something, a job that was going to give me time with my kids. So I, I, so I chose ER. And I loved ER because I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, so I really enjoyed not knowing what my day is going to look like. And then from there, literally I was three months out of school, and – and, and in 2009, when I graduated, the economy had collapsed. So there weren't a lot of jobs out. So I wanted something that was part-time that I could at least supplement my income a little bit and to do the, something that I was really starting to enjoy, which was euthanasia. I did not, it's very important, particularly vet students that I'd say this, it, I did not have a comfort with it when I was in vet school. I was nervous. I was scared. I did not, you know, we don't get a lot of teachings on it in vet school. So I didn't know what to say, how to handle myself. Euthanasia is, is taught kind of subliminally as a failure, right? If you can't do XYZ, if XYZ isn't working, then we euthanize. So it's not treated as this, this treatment plan that you can actually make a very, very beautiful experience. So when I got out of vet school and I was doing emergency medicine, obviously that comes with a lot of euthanasias. I started taking a lot of pride in those euthanasia appointments and the difference that I was making, and that gave me a lot of fulfillment. So then, you know, when I just started kind of saying the word hospice to people and they would get it and they kind of felt like that I wasn't trying to make them do things that they didn't want to do. And, and people say to me all the time, I don't want to go back to the clinic because I feel like I'm going to be made to do things that I don't want to do. Like, do I really need to spend $600 on my 15-year-old dog who has advanced arthritis and do x-rays and all these things when it's not really going to make a difference for his quality of life right now? And I think the way that I handled that conversation just was it, the clients understood it and it worked for them and it worked for me too. So it was this great little, you know, this storm of just, I was loving it. Um, and so I started Lab of Love, not having any idea what this was going to turn into at all. It was just something that I enjoyed doing and I decided to do a little bit more of it. You know, that was it. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, so. <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. So you're telling me like, 
you're in ER and three months later <laughs> with a baby. I mean, my gosh. And then you start lap of love three months later after. And you know what it is when you're <laughs> turned on to something. Yeah. I remember oh my gosh. when I first started, you know, I, I was, I would sit up all night long at the ER. Cause usually from like maybe 11 to 12 PM to like four or 5 AM, no, nothing comes in. So I would just, instead of sleeping, I would spend that time and I would design logos and write content for my website. And I wrote my own website at the beginning. And well, shoot, even now I write the, the content for the website. Like I loved it. I was so immersed in what was possible. And for the first time, probably, probably since I was a kid, you know, I felt like I, there was something that I was in charge of. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're in vet school, you are told what to do. You're told what to do every single moment, where to be, the class, you know, everything. And that's because they're, they're training you to become a veterinarian. But for the first time, I really felt like something was, you know, was, was mine. So I, I, I was so lit up with that experience. And I would, I mean, you know, because with kids, you know, kids don't wait. So, <laughs> they sure don't. <laughs> no, they don't wait. I mean, I would give up sleep over anything. That's probably why I did ER, you yeah. know, because I don't, I don't give up the time with my kids, but I do give up sleep to, to make all that happen. No, we have to. Again, we actually have to. Can you explain um, just like in depth how veterinary hospice works? Yes. So hospice, just like in human hospice, and I volunteered for human hospice, which is where the whole inspiration for this came from um, when I was in college. Okay. Yeah. So hospice is not a place. Hospice is a philosophy of treating a case. Okay. So it is, it means I'm not going to do curative options anymore. It means we're not going to do, um, you know, I'm not going to admit the patient into the hospital and do IV therapies and heavy dose medications, blah, blah, blah. Like it, it just, it doesn't mean curative. It means comfort. It means everything that I'm going to do is around the comfort of your pet. And generally speaking, that doesn't mean diagnostics. That doesn't mean pulling blood for, uh, for tests. That doesn't mean radiographs. That doesn't mean MRIs. It doesn't mean any of those things because those things give us answers and answers then um, uh, guide us in treatment options. But hospice is all about uh, comfort measures. So yes, there are some palliative radiation or therapy, chemotherapy that we might do for comfort measures if there's like a big nasal tumor or something like that. But the point is, is that, you know, if I have a, a patient that's a 15-year-old Labrador that has advanced arthritis, then I'm going to be using the heaviest doses of medication that I can possibly use for the comfort of that pet. And things that people would say to me all the time at the beginning, I got this question all the time, why are you using that high dose of gabapentin or that high dose of tramadol or that high dose of whatever? Aren't you worried about, name the side effect of these diseases or of, of these medications? And I always said, it's not... I'm not worried about the side effect. The side effect is, is fine. I'm worried about today. Is that pet comfortable today? Is he sleeping right now for that family? And a bunch of right nows are going to turn into an experience with a family that allow them time to come to, to, to cope with the decision to euthanize, which of course we have that in veterinary medicine there, that doesn't exist in human medicine. Mm -hmm. So the hospital, this in veterinary medicine is just again about the curative options. It's a medical. It's 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 a, it's a medical process. It's not it's not without medical supervision, um, but it's all about uh, comfort oriented measures that help the family come to terms with the end of life of, of the pet. Excellent.
Excellent. And so are you, so again, are you helping to try um, to get like hospice and end of life training into like universities? Uh, Cause again, you've been going all around schools and just talking and everywhere really. Uh, and, and, you know, kind of uh, getting people to kind of understand what you're trying to do in your mission. And so are you trying to get that more into the universities? Yeah, it, it really is, you know, and we've been so blessed for the past, gosh, I think it's been six years now. We teach at the university of Florida. Uh, my business partner and I, uh, we teach the actual end-of-life course for the, the seniors. And it's an elective, but almost all of them take it. So that course is, it, it to me, it's a blueprint for whatever university can have. Um, and, you know, it's talking about like what to say, how to help a family, you know, manage these cases and how you manage how you talk somebody through euthanasia for arthritis is completely different than how you talk them through with congestive heart failure. You right. make the decision to, to euthanize in different ways and you, and you manage pain and discomfort in different ways. So it is, it, yes, I would love for every veterinary student to be exposed to end of life care options, you know, at, at some point in their career. It, I mean, it, it's, it's really essential. You're going to see it more than you're going to see Cushing's disease. Well, and that's the thing. It's invaluable. I, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we see this all the time and there's just so many of us that just can't, we just don't know how to handle it as well. And so, uh, yeah, so that's excellent. I, I love that you're trying to, again, pursue that to really help all these students. Cause again, I think it's, it's like you said, we see it so often, uh, but yet we don't really get exposed to it. We just get low diagnosed and treat. So I, I love that. Um, how have you seen this grow? I mean, you know, you know, it's, it's been, it's, it, the, the whole, the whole phrasing of euthanasia hospice and how we explain it to families and how we treat it. It, it has grown immensely. And, and honestly, it's grown, it's grown past anything that I ever thought it would, or any of my, many of my colleagues that come and tell me, they're like, Oh my God, I can't believe, you know, this actually worked <laughs> there. I, I had somebody a couple years ago. She's like, I thought you were crazy when you first started. You know, and I'm like, yeah, I never thought this would be a full-time job, but it has not only been a full-time position, but it's also been something that other veterinarians have been drawn to um, and, and wanted to do too. So I think that that's what surprised me the most is I don't, I underestimated how many veterinarians would be, would be called to do this type of work. Yeah. Um, I knew I liked it. And I remember doing my little numbers at the beginning and I'm like, if I can see five families a day, then I'll be able to quit my other job. And, you know, and yeah. now here in Tampa, we see 25 to 35 families a day. Wow. So oh it's, gosh. it has grown a lot. And, the, and, and that, that's really neat is, is that, you know, 30% of our, of, of the families that come to us, come to us from word of mouth. So when you have an experience like this, people talk about it and they share the experience and it just becomes a snowball effect that, you know, means that when you have a good experience, a good end of life experience with your pet, you want your friends and family to have that same thing. You want them to go through it as well. So I think that the word of mouth um, spreading and then also the doctors that are called to do this work, that, that has really grown beyond anything that I thought it would, it, you know, would at the beginning. That's excellent. You know, I wanted to ask you this, uh, the, um, cause you go into a lot of homes. And so I, you know, again, cause I don't, a lot of times when owners bring their pets in to be euthanized at the hospitals, we don't always get to see like their whole family. Right. And I'm just saying like, you know, you being able to a lot of times see like all, all the family and things like that. Do they ever ask you, um, because it can always be really, really tough, you know, especially with, with the, with the children. Have they ever asked you to kind of explain, um, what's going on to like the kids and everything like that? Do you ever, are you ever put in that position? All the time, all the time. And I think because parents don't know how to explain it. 
And they're, they're in their own grief. You know, here they are having their own grief about the loss of a family member. And then this child is now crying and they don't know life without this dog or this cat. So um, many, many times, you know, if a kid does ask me a question specifically, I'll look to mom and dad and I'll just see if I get the head nod from them that I can answer that question. Um, but I, I make sure that I, that I introduce myself to kids, that I'm very open with them, that I shake their hand. You know, ch- children are just small humans, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. They still want to be treated like adults. They still want to be acknowledged like an adult. Yeah. You know, so I, I, t- I spend a long time talking to kids about this. Um, I will tell you, teenagers up until, you know, 20s, sometimes 30s, <laughs> is the hardest age to talk through euthanasia because there's a very altruistic view of the world still. And they'll say things like, why are you killing my friend? Um, why are, you know, why are we, we're, we're giving up? We should be fighting this, you know, and, and, and I love that perspective, but I spend a lot of time talking with them and saying, you know, if this doesn't happen, your pet is, you know, he will die. There, there's no question. We're all dying. We're on a, on, a, on a process to death. None of, none of us are going to get out of here alive. <laughs> right. yeah. So I, I, I just, I tell them we have a choice right now on whether or not this death is a peaceful death or whether it is a um, painful and sufferable death. And if he's screaming in pain, you know, I'm sure you don't want that for him. And I'm sure you don't want that for your parents to have to throw him in the car and rush to the ER. You know, so I like, this is how I talk. I spend a lot of time with kids that are of the age, you know, five plus to, to hear what I have to say, because to me, it's not just about them getting through the experience with as little guilt and as little pain as possible. It's also Mondrian about, about inspiring them to love our profession. And I know one day, one of those kids is going to want to become a veterinarian. And I don't want them to think that this is a scary thing or that I was a scary person or that I didn't know how to handle it or that I was scared even. I want them to know that I had a lot of comfort and confidence in what I was doing. And to me, that's how we inspire another generation of, of veterinarians. That's extremely powerful. Uh, and Danny, I mean, I, I, I just, again, gives me a little bit of chills because that's so beautiful to be able to pass that on to children and be able to really just talk to them about that. And again, that is because that is one of the biggest reasons why kids don't want to go into our profession and yeah, to be right? able to explain that and to express that. Oh my gosh, that is beautiful. And I, and I mean it, you're, you're really helping so many children see that this can actually be something that we're ending suffering. That that's beautiful. Yeah, no, it, it is. I mean, and kids are great in appointments. They say uh, things like, when do we get another dog? <laughs> and mom and dad laugh and there's like a light moment, you know, exactly. like, you realize, like, life is going to go on. It's okay. And then they cry and then they, you know, but also as, as parents, you get to, you get to model what healthy grief looks like and yeah. he- healthy grief looks like crying. It looks like being sad. Like this is healthy for us to have these emotions. And then the next day we talk about it. And then the next day we maybe share tears, you know, but you're not punching walls. You're not being mad at each other. Like right. this is just a healthy sadness. And there was this one time there were three teenage boys and the, and then, and then the father and the, the mom was, I forget why she couldn't be there, but she wasn't there. It was just the father and the three boys. And, you know, bless their hearts, such a sweet family. They were crying, you know, and, and, and obviously they, they, and it's of course being a female, sometimes they're not as open with the tears around me. Um, but afterwards, the three teenage boys were the, the pallbearers, you know, for the dog and they put the dog in the back of my car and then they all like, I, I get teary. I just thinking about it again. Like they all stood there as, as I drove away and the, the dad called me. I'll never forget the voicemail. He left me, he left me this voicemail 
And he was like, I just want to tell you that that was the most amazing experience to see my boys handle a family member that we had. And they were the pallbearers and they sucked it up and they put up, you know, they put the dog in the car and we hugged it out. And it was, it's just such a cool experience that I think models, again, you know, the loss of, of a human that we're all going to go through. Wow. So this is almost a practice, you know, Absolutely. that the kids get to kind of see. Great story. That's awesome. How, um, how have things changed uh, for your guys, your business uh, with this COVID, with our COVID situation? You know, the, the, and you're, you're a veterinarian, you know, people don't stop caring for their pets. Right. They still need us to be there. And so the demand for what we do <laughs> has not gone away at all. Um, my biggest uh, challenge or the biggest um, thing that I had to focus on in the past couple months has been keeping doctors inspired to, to, to stay out there. You know, we have to keep helping. We have to keep helping. And with our doctors, we go into three to five families' homes per day. So that's a lot less um, interaction than in a veterinary clinic. In a veterinary clinic, you are coming in contact with, you know, five to 10 other technicians and nurses that are that in, in that vicinity. So even if you don't see clients face to face, you're still coming in contact with a lot of other people and the people that they've come in contact with. Right. So with our doctors, it's, it's different. We've had a lot less contact. Um, but of course, there's been a lot of scare and we have doctors in hotspots in, in Washington State, in New York, in South Florida. Oh, so it's oh, been yeah. a lot of just trying to keep keep going and giving them the PPE, giving them anything and everything that they want and they need to, to stay. So uh, the demand has not gone down at all. Um, but, uh, but we have made some concessions. So another thing, you know, just what we've done. We will talk on the phone with families. So when we are, when we always call to say we're I'm 20 minutes away. Just so the families know when we're going to be there. So when we call them to say that we're 20 minutes away, at that point, we're explaining the euthanasia process, explaining what's going to happen and talking with the family just about the condition of their pet so that when we get to the home, we're spending only 20 minutes in the home instead of 45 minutes to an hour like we typically do. Right. We okay. still get that much attention from, yeah. you know, from, from the doctor. But so that's one of the major differences. Good protocols. And so, and how is your guys is so have you guys been doing a lot more than like telemedicine type of work as well? Um, so we just rolled that out. You know, it's been in, in the works for a long time. We've been planning this for a while. It was just okay. less, you know, on the back burner until yeah. COVID. And then when, once COVID happened, we pushed out our um, tele-advice, um, which we, because we stopped doing hospice appointments, hospice appointments keep uh, uh, take about an hour to an hour and a half in the home. Mm. Yeah. So our doctors were very concerned about being in someone's home for that amount of time. So we pushed those to phone calls instead. Um, so uh, the, the telemedicine is is really about have, helping families have a good quality of life conversation and what they're going to do, and that's picked up a little bit. It's not it, it's never going to be more important than going into the homes. You know, going into the homes is always the most important thing for us. Okay, yeah, and so uh, I wanted to ask you: Did you have to take any, or have you had a lot of exposure to um, like counseling courses to kind of help you deal with the grief uh, and you know they're feeling during the hospice care? Yeah, no, you know, we, we haven't. Um, I read books and write and read articles and listen to and I've, I've asked, um, I have a couple of friends that are counselors. So I've asked them like, how do you talk to kids? You know, like advice when I was first starting. But I got to tell you that when doctors that do this work are called to do this work. So we as, as a group could probably write the book on how not to feel grief through this. Um, and there is an important distinction between empathy and compassion. Empathy is I feel what you feel and compassion is I feel for you. And I could go into that, like the studies on, on that, but I found this one study that like just rocked my world. It was so cool. But basically it says the people that have high empathy, they also feel 
grief and pain a great deal. And although that is a very good trait to have in friendships, because you need to have that in our personal relationships in life, in what we do, we don't really call it empathy so much as we call it compassion. Um, there's this actual study that showed that when, when parts of compassion light up in your brain, it also lights up action. So there's a difference between you're, you're so drained, you know, with empathy, you're so drained and you're feeling down. And a lot of times people aren't called to action when they feel like that. But with compassion, you are feeling for other people. You're caring for them. You're wanting to help them. There's, a, there's an action-oriented part of your brain that gets lit up with compassion. And that's what we have. We have this immense compassion for the families that we help and the pets that we help without having that, that, that empathetic drain that happens. I'm not telling you that we don't go home and we cry and I can't tell a story and cry just by thinking of it. That that's different. That's just being a human being, you know, but there's a difference that you don't bring it home with you. And we all have that as part of our personality. And so it's not something that we have to combat at all. But look, if you do ER for 10 years, you're going to get burned out on some things. If you do hospice and euthanasia for 10 years, there's going to be a part of it that you want to go see puppies and kittens again, you know, but there's a season of all of our lives and there's been a lot of our veterinarians have had difficult things happen to them in their lives or loss of their pets. And from that loss, they've been moved to compassion and to help other people through this work. So, and I'm not saying again, that there's not a a cycle with that. Um, But if you ask any of our doctors, any, any doctor that does this, you, they would tell you, I'm not drained by what I do. Nice, nice. Uh, what kind of training do you guys receive in going, um, you know, to be a lap of love uh, veterinarian? Um, what, what are the most common cases too? Do you feel like they see? Yeah, yeah. So we we actually do a lot of training now. At the very beginning, we didn't because none of us knew what we were doing. <laughs> we, were just, we were just helping each other, you know. Right. So now we have a more dedicated training platform. Um, we before COVID, we would bring all of the doctors down to Tampa for three days, and they would ride around with two separate doctors. We have a very high caseload here in Tampa, so they would they would ride around with two separate doctors, so they could see two separate doctors how they do it. We also have um, a bunch of um, online webinars and videos that of from lectures that we've done, and we place that onto our um, what we call Love You, which is our Love University. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so all of our doctors watch those and read those articles and, and, and get through that. Um, but again, you know, it, it comes number one with having the right personality for this. And then we just kind of finesse it. We give them ideas, but we don't, I never want to tell them what to say. We say, here's the feeling we want people to have once you said what you're going to say. And here's what I say for that. So everyone gets to take their own personality in, into these appointments. Um, but we do have specific training now. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. So, you know, again, there's a lot of owners that come in with their pets who are declining health, arthritis, and, you know, a lot of those things. And owners are just, you know, they're approach, they're starting to approach the subject and they're just really worried and not really able to kind of handle or know how they're going to handle uh, this type of situation about end of life care. How do you guys approach this? How do you guys approach and prepare owners um, for this type of stage in the pet's life. Yeah. So I'll say, I'll talk first what I would do in the, in the emergency room, because by the time they get to us, they've already almost kind of accepted that. Okay. Um, but in, in the ER, and I tell vet students this all the time, you have to be the first one that says euthanasia. The veterinarian, the, the veterinarian does, because the client won't say it first. And I remember it took me a few months of doing ER to realize that, maybe a few weeks. <laughs> I realized that. Where I'm like, wow, these clients, they're waiting for me to say euthanasia. They don't want to say it first. Right. So as a veterinary team, we have to be the one that opens that door. And then when families call us, they are, 
they, they know that it's coming, they know it's going to happen soon, and they just don't know what to do next. So they pick up the phone and they're literally, because I answered my own phone for three years, people will say on the phone, I'm not sure what I need from you. I just want to know that you're there. Yeah. And so then it's my responsibility. And of course, now we have a team of 80 people that answer the phone and a third of them are technicians or, or doctors. And we say, do you have a cat or a dog? boy or girl? What's his name? Tell me a little bit about what's going on. So that gets the families talking and telling us what's going on because particularly with what we do, I can't jump to a conclusion that they want me to, to euthanize today. And sometimes the family's like, he's in a lot of pain. We want you soon. And so then I, I realized that I have to say, well, what's, you know, what does soon mean to you? You know, how soon, no, I would say, how soon do you think you need me? Yeah. Because if they say soon, soon to some people means today and soon to some people means next week. (laughs) I like, I I had to say, how soon do you think you need me? And then they would say today, next week, tomorrow, whatever. And then I knew how to coach them. So if it's today, now I need to talk very, very bluntly. But if it's next week, I can try, then I can see what their pet's condition is. Can we wait till next week? You know, so, um, and, and honestly, I, at the very beginning, I had a lot of people tell me, don't put so much content on your website. Don't put your price on your website. You want them to call you so you can convince them that you're the best. And I'm like, no, no, no. listen, I'm a millennial. I want information. <laughs> I want on the website and I want to know it now. And I want to know it at two o'clock in the morning when you're not answering your phone. <laughs> so, so we are super big on content on the website, videos, quality of life videos, scales, you know, like any, every, anything and everything that helps you, we want it to be put out there. So that yeah, your, your website's way great. I mean, I, I love your website. It. It is We're redoing beautiful. it. Oh, nice. Even better this year. Yes. Oh, I love it. Yes. Where, where do you feel you've been making the, the, the biggest impact or, you know, again, and I don't know if that's a question you can answer, but just, you know, or some of more, your more difficult cases. You know, when I don't see as many families anymore because my time is spent on the business, but I can tell you that when you when you go into a home, you feel that fulfillment every single day, and it is it, it it's it's just an it's an amazing ability to know that you're doing such a good thing in veterinary medicine and you're touching every family. Now, you know what one of my biggest um, one of my biggest loves is talking to veterinary students because it shapes their career and. I love, oh my gosh, oh, like every May, June, July, I get these Facebook messages from vet students who I've talked to over the years and they say, Danny, I just saw my first euthanasia and I wanted to tell you that it went so beautifully because of what I heard you say years ago. And to me, that's not just about that veterinarian feeling comfortable, it's about the family's experience that they received also. So I love talking to veterinary students about, about euthanasia and about how not to be scared of it. Nice. So uh, I know it takes um, a very special veterinarian to do like, you know, hospice care. Um, you know, how do you support your hospice veterinarians, including like protecting them from developing capacity fatigue or anything like that? Or how do you protect yourself? I, I think I think one, one of the things that we do really, really well is that we keep everybody connected. And we have a group of people that, again, their personality is that they desire connection. Um, and our clo- we have a closed Facebook page, obviously, just for the, the company. And everybody's on there. Ev- all the time. I mean, there are tons of posts per day and, and we get to share stories and support each other and talk about, um, you know, certain cases and just like, and one of my favorite things is um, the doctors will take a, a, a picture out their window and they'll say my view from today. And so it'll, it's just a bunch of pictures of like, you know, the Sahara desert. <laughs> I don't, is that in the United States? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> 
with the beautiful mountains or the snow yeah. or the beach or, you know, because yeah. everybody's spread around the country. We have 130 doctors around the oh, country. Yeah. So to see, like, everybody's view and how different that is and for everyone to share, it's it's really cool. It's, it's really cool. That's awesome. I love that. Um, I love your guys' uh, what's on your website. You guys have this, um, the quality of life scale in the, in the daily diary. How, how did you, you know, come to create that? You know, it, it was just a, a, lot of, a lot of thinking and a, and a lot of coaching families through it. Um, quality of life scales are kind of like, I don't know, breakfast, I guess you could say. Everyone wants something different, right? Yeah. So, like, some people need a penny, a penny in a, you know, two, two jars and a penny in the good for good days and a penny in the bad for bad days. And then after a while, you can see how many pennies in each, right? Or, like, some people need an algorithm that's, like, weighted and, you know, an Excel spreadsheet that has pivot tables that you can write. Like, you know, some people are just different on how they want to evaluate their pet's quality of life. Mm-hmm. So, we wanted to make it very, very simple. So we wrote down, you know, the, the things that are important, like making sure that, the, that they're out of pain. Are they engaging with you? How is their cleanliness? And also, how is your ability as a family to cope with the nursing care that's, that's required? Because there's a lot of times when people, they might be able to financially afford the care. They might be able to time-wise, you know, be able to actually manage their, the care of their pet. But they're just emotionally, it's so difficult for them. They have things going on in their lives. Their spouse is dying. You know, I mean, there's all these things that I've heard a million times. So the quality of life scale was really meant to not only help them evaluate their pet, but also help them evaluate their family situation and how likely it is that they're going to be able to get through it. Oh, very cool. I loved it. I love that you have that on there. Yeah. Because really, again, being owners, being able to like see, write down and really be able to understand what's going on with their pets. Sometimes they just need to talk about it, like you said, and just write it down and express it. So it's excellent. It's a great, great tool. Um, It can be really hard for owners that have like religious convictions to make a decision uh, about their pet's quality of life. How do you assist in those situations? You know, there. I've helped people of all different religious backgrounds and, and myself, I'm a super spiritual person. And, you know, I've, I've been, I've been lucky to be raised in certain religions that I can understand and talk to them. Um, uh, but, you know, I think it's very important. Like I even got to have a, I have a little cross on right now, but I, I wouldn't wear this into a family's home mm-hmm. because it means something different to me than it does to other people. Right. And I would never want them to make up something that, that they thought that I wouldn't approve of them or something like that. So, you know, it's, that's number one is that we honor everybody's wishes. Um, and as far as, th- you know, maybe some religions that don't necessarily agree with euthanasia, there, there have been a few Buddhists that don't agree with euthanasia. Now, I will tell you, there's many different types of Buddhists. So that's not everybody. That's just, I have, I've had a handful of families that tell me that they don't believe in euthanasia for religious reasons. And I respect that. That's fine. Right. Um, the important thing is that we help them keep the pet comfortable and that I explain to them what's going to happen. So if you have a Yorkie with congestive heart failure and you want him to die naturally, you've got to understand that he, his lungs will fill up with fluid and he will drown on his own fluid. It's going to be very, very difficult to watch. I don't want you to freak out. I'm going to respect the fact that that's what you want because, because I can't make you do anything. And for everybody that's listening that, that says, oh, that's terrible, the, that's blah, 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 you know, that's animal abuse. We do it to humans every day. Yeah. My God, great point. You know? Oh, my God, absolutely. So exactly we like right. to judge everybody, right? Yeah. We want to judge what everyone's doing and what they're doing. You should be doing this and you're being, you know, uh, uh, selfish with your pet or, you know, it's animal abuse. 
yada, yada. We do it to humans every day. So it is my responsibility as a veterinarian to make sure that that pet is as comfortable as possible, that the owner is aware of what's going to happen, and that they have all the tools that they can have in order to make that experience as good as it can possibly be. I will tell you that the vast majority of people that after I explain the death process, yeah. 90% of them will choose euthanasia. Nice. Yeah. Even if they don't believe it. Because what they really want is they want a peaceful experience, right? right. Like at yeah. the end of the day, that's what they really, really want. And they want to be in line with their religious convictions. And rarely is there some bib, you know, biblical idea that says there's no euthanasia. Some Everyone can interpret religious, biblical yeah. things, whatever, Quran, like I don't care what it is. Everyone's right. going to experience it differently and interpret it differently. So when I experience, medi- or when I, when I um, explain medically what's going on, then they get to make an informed decision for their family and without judgment from me. Right. Nice. Excellent. Where is Lap of Love available? How can people find uh, Lap of Love if they're listening now and would like to reach out to you? Yeah, so, I mean, our, our website has the most information, lapoflove.com, um, and we have a map there, and it shows all of our doctors that are spread out across the country. We have, uh, like I said, a, a little over 130 doctors in over 31 states, um, so we have just an, an amazing team of people spread out um, a, a, around the country. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Uh, again, Danny, what you have done for our profession is remarkable. You have been, again, you have given pet owners the ability to uh, be comfortable with their end of life decision. You've also been able to help your colleagues because while some of us are, again, some of them are great at diagnosing and treating their pets. Again, many have really difficult time with end of life care. This helps fight the compassion fatigue that many veterinarians suffer from. You know, for owners to receive this specialized care is such, again, such a difficult time and such a difficult time is absolutely invaluable. You have personally transformed this part of the veterinary industry and I have, and have helped create just an incredibly high standard of care that helps, again, put our profession in such an amazing light. Um, giving pet owners the most peaceful and respectful end-of-life care possible. Again, thank you so much, again, for being here, talking with us today again danny again we all love you to death again you're, you're a gator and we uh think of just so so highly of you and i just can't believe what you have accomplished in such a short period of time again danny is super young guys and if you don't know i mean my gosh it's unbelievable what she's been able to accomplish in such a short amount of time so again danny thank you so much for being here we really appreciate it Andrew, such a such a pleasure to talk to you thank you well thank you when we get back i'll reveal my product of the week stick around voice america is on your favorite smart speaker if you have alexa or google home go ahead and give us a try hey alexa play finding your frequency podcast on TuneIn. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund is a 501c3 organization created by Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Dr. Contreras had twin boys early in his vet school education. He often had to study with his children, which led to their love for animals and desire to help educate others about pets. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund stems from this love of animals and education. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund's mission is to help educate children and young adults about how to best care for their pets and to help them fulfill their dreams of becoming veterinarians, animal advocates, and animal healthcare professionals. 
This organization helps provide scholarship money as well as educational seminars to help individuals realize their dreams. The VetPro's Pet Education Charitable Fund also provides financial assistance towards health care for pets in families experiencing various hardships such as bankruptcy and unemployment or natural disasters such as flooding, tornado, or fire. Please visit our website, vetbrospeteducation.org, and consider making a donation to our cause. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales. Welcome back to Healthy Tales. It's time for our product of the week. It's almost summer, and boy, did it get hot quickly. We had a long winter, and even most of the spring was pretty cold this year, which made things even worse. Now it's time to go out and play with our pets and get them the much-needed exercise that will help them shed that pesky winter weight. This could be a little tricky because we need to be careful with our older pets, our overweight pets, our arthritic pets, and of course, our brachycephalic or smushed-faced dog pets. We really want them to get great exercise, but we also want them to be safe. One of the best ways to accomplish this is by taking advantage of this week's product of the week, the doggy pool. Ideally, you would get a pool deep enough that your pet could swim in it rather than just stand. And there are all types of sizes out there. If you have a small dog, it's super easy to get a small pool to have fun in. Well, maybe slightly more difficult now that we are starting summer in a pandemic. It can be a little trickier with our big dogs, but even a two foot tall pool can be very reasonable. Swimming for exercise is fantastic for dogs. For our arthritic dogs, it's a low impact, well, really no impact, exercise that allows them to build muscle. For our overweight dogs, it's also a great exercise to burn calories and lessen the impact on joints. Veterinarians support swimming as one of the best treatments for other conditions as well, such as hip dysplasia, back aches, chronic pain, and especially great for many surgical rehabilitation cases. Swimming is a great way to get increased mobility in sore and stiff joints. Swimming also helps increase muscle mass, which will help with joint health. Please remember, it's essential that you are always out by the pool with your pet to keep him or her safe. It is extremely important that if your pet has any medical issues that might prohibit them from swimming, then these should be discussed with your veterinarian. Swimming pools for our pets can enhance quality of life and overall condition. It can improve circulation, coordination, flexibility, and balance. And it can help build strength and stamina. In general, swimming is extremely safe, and it's a fun option for our pets to engage in and build fun, lasting memories. So get yourself a doggy pole. Your pets will love you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Special thanks to my amazing co-hosts, Elaine, Robbie, Tim, and my expert guest, Dr. Danny McBeady. I want to thank you, our amazing listeners, for your support. Please rate us on iTunes and continue to give us feedback at vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. We hope you join us for our next episode where we give you more great tips and help you unleash your pet parenting power. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Healthy Tales. Please join your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras, for another edition of the program next Wednesday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's wishing better health for you and your pet.